You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Uh, Renato was a very charming Italian guy. And he, uh, he sadly has passed away now. Uh, but I don't think he would mind me saying this. Um, he said to me at one point, uh, because he knew Hong Kong was a strong supporter of the, of the secretary, he, said, he would say, Stuart, my dear, in his charming Italian <laughs> accent, he said, when I travel outside Geneva, I see presidents, I see prime ministers. When I come back to Geneva, if I want to go to the toilet, I have to ask the ambassadors. And then they say, all right, but only two minutes. <laughs> A great guy, Renato. Uh, marvelous man. That was Stuart Harbinson. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. Stuart had a distinguished career in public service in Hong Kong, serving from 1994 to 2002 and then joining the WTO as one of the OG's chief of staff. He later became a senior advisor to DG Pascal Lamy. He also chaired many bodies, including the General Council, Trips and Services Councils, and the Dispute Settlement Body. So he saw it all. We had an insightful conversation covering many years of the WTO history. He told me some great anecdotes and reflections that will be of great value to those working in international trade, those aspiring to work in international trade, and even those without nothing to do with international trade. Stuart was a delight, and I was thrilled to have him as a guest, a true multilateralist if I ever met one. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help by spreading the word, recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in this conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Stuart, good, good morning. I'm delighted to host you here back at the WTO. <laughs> How does it feel to be back here? It's uh, always a good feeling to come back <laughs> to the WTO, I must say. And I, I mean, I don't know how, how often you are, but it does seem to, to have changed a bit. It, it has, but um, when I walk through the doors, I still feel uh, at home. kind of at home. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm uh, glad to hear that. <laughs> I, I would like to know a bit about your about yourself. Like you're originally from where? I'm originally from the UK. From the UK. But I lived for many years um, in Hong Kong, and uh, was fortunate enough to to be employed by the Hong Kong government. I was never a UK civil servant, so my loyalty was always mm-hmm. clearly with with Hong Kong. Um, and I um, got into the trade negotiating scene there initially within the Asian region and then after that I did a spell working on relations with Europe and then after that I got into the multilateral game and was sent over to Geneva as the permanent representative of Hong Kong uh, to the GATS actually in 1994. So you were here at the very 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 beginning. (laughs) I was, I was and it was a very um, exciting time I think there was um, a feeling amongst the delegates and the permanent representatives that we had created something quite special in the WTO. It was to some extent an experimental organization, but one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that that we had a kind of more collegial spirit in those days and there was a bit more give and take, a little bit more self-restraint. Uh, when it came to national positions. Do you, think, sort of do you think that had to do with the fact that it was an experiment a bit, like that, uh, that feeling? Definitely, yeah. Uh, the feeling was we wanted to get this organization off to a good start. Uh, we didn't always succeed in that, obviously. 
I mean, the, the, the usual tensions are obviously still there. Um, but, but there was a little bit more give and take, I think, in those days, in the interests of getting the WTO up and running. Um, but let me go back a bit. Um, when, you, when you were growing up, were you always want, did you always want to be a, a diplomat? Was that like the goal at some point? No, I wouldn't say that. In <laughs> fact, I came from uh, I come from a, a medical family, ah, I see. Uh, and I was always under pressure to be a doctor. <laughs> In fact, I had signed up to be a doctor uh, to go to medical school, I should say, at one point, but I backed out. And my interest then was more in travel and uh, getting, you know, to know foreign cultures and uh, broadening broadening my horizons in that respect. And that's what brought you to Hong Kong. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, but your academic background, so you didn't end up going to to medical school. So no. you went to. I got a master's uh, from Cambridge in the UK in uh, anthropology, social anthropology. So. Uh, That was that again. I guess reflected my interest in different cultures and, and, and that sort of thing. Which I think is very useful when you're a diplomat. <laughs> to some extent, yes, yeah. <laughs> But okay, so now going back to the to your, your experiences, you mentioned that you before coming to the multilateral, you were dealing with some bilateral mm. issues. How do you compare the approach to bilateral and multilateral? Well, I, I would say that um, in terms of bilateral commercial relations, we're, we're talking here about trade, obviously, um, the issues that one economy has with another economy are fairly clear. And uh, you can, you can uh, research all of that, you can do your homework, you can prepare for bilateral negotiations. And, uh, you know, if, if the stars are aligned, you might make some progress. The multilateral scene is much more complicated. And I've, I, I found and still find the multilateral trade scene uh, quite fascinating because it is a mixture of um, intellectual interest, I think, because the subjects I find quite intellectually interesting. But also personal relationships are very, very important, perhaps more important in the multilateral scene. If you come from a small economy like Hong Kong, you can still make a difference yeah. in the WTO. Uh, whereas bilaterally, it's not so easy in that respect. I think that that what you're saying about uh, the personal relationship became really evident during the pandemic, where you can see that it is true that technology can assist in uh, to a certain extent, but the work that we do here is very much about the personal connection. And I think that it has to do with what you're saying. Uh, you have to know, you have to trust your your partners, and it's something that it's a process. It's not. It doesn't happen from one day to another. Yeah, I fully agree with that. It's all about building relationships and trust. Um, and uh, if you if you have that, there's always a little bit of extra margin for maneuver somehow. Um, interesting point, actually, is that when um, Of course, I say, said that I came to Geneva as the permanent representative of Hong Kong, but of course in 1997, with the reunification of Hong Kong and, the, and mainland China, I then became the permanent representative of Hong Kong, China. And um, I was quite worried at that point that somebody uh, might put their hand up and say, just a minute, you know, what is going on here? Is Hong Kong the same as Hong Kong, China? Uh, are, we, are we still getting the same deal that we, that we had? Um, and going back to history a little bit, in 1986, when Hong Kong became a member of the GATT, one or two countries had actually expressed reservations about what might happen in 1997. And amongst those was India. They didn't object, but they said, you know, we reserve our position as to what might happen in 1997. Fortunately, I had a very good relationship then with the ambassador of India. And I, I had a quiet word with him and said, can you kind of scope this out back home and see if anything unpleasant or uh, uh, you know, unexpected is likely to happen? And he, and he did that for me. And he came back to me and he said, Stuart, don't worry, it'll, it'll be okay on our side, no, no problem. 
So it's that sort of thing, you know, that um, if you have relationships, um, can, can smooth the path quite a lot. So you're talking about this transition specifically for Hong Kong, but you were also at the transition from the GATT to the WTO. How was that process? Well, um, it wasn't smooth. I mean, lots of um, uh, issues came up uh, for the first time. I recall um, in the early days, for example, there was a meeting with a dispute settlement body, and I think it was Japan um, had uh, lost a, a panel case. Uh, and so the, the matter came before the DSP, as usual, for adoption of the panel report. And I think Japan um, objected on the grounds that there wasn't a quorum of, of members, of the whole membership, that is, which was true, actually, <laughs> because there are only so many members in Geneva, and if you don't get them all in the room at the same time, uh, you could say there's not a quorum. And so that, that was a very interesting exercise. You know, we, there was a lot of informal consultations, as you can imagine, about this. And eventually, uh, Japan, you know, understood uh, that, that this was not going to be a, a good way to get the WTO up and running. So it backed off and said, no, no, we withdraw our, our objection and the meeting went ahead. Actually, so there were a lot of, you know, things like this in, in the early stages. I rem I've, I've been to many meetings. And sometimes, I don't know if we have enough. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking about this, but I, I, didn't, I didn't think beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but now, it's, sometimes it's even difficult to say because the meetings are hybrid. There are some people who are in the room and some people who are uh, through their computer. But, but yeah, uh, it's sometimes. <laughs> yeah. but, but since you were at this transition, did you think, Oh my God, we're going to be concluding agreements like every other month. <laughs> not, not really, because uh, you know, this was in the aftermath of the Uruguay round. And uh, I think most people thought that, well, we've bitten off quite a lot in the Uruguay round and we need a bit of, need a bit of time to digest that initially. And of course, many developing countries in particular Uh, thought that they'd got a raw deal in the Uruguay round, you know, that they'd been asked to take on commitments in trips and services. In return, they got uh, the agreement on textiles and clothing, which was a phase-out arrangement over 10 years. Um, and agriculture was brought into the gap for the first time, but on a very kind of de facto basis, you know, there was, there was no revolution And there still hasn't been a revolution in terms of agricultural trade. So, um, yeah, there was that feeling. But then as the, you know, three, four, five years went by after 1995, then groups of members started to get together and said, well, maybe we need a new round. And um, there, was a, there was a group called the Friends of a New Round, huh? um, which Hong Kong was part of. Um, and I took part in that. Um, the European Union, or the European Communities, as it, as it was in those days, also wanted that. You had um, Leon Britton as the um, Trade Commissioner in Europe, and he was going on, always going on about the, the Millennium Round. But at that stage, the US um, was against it. Um, they thought it was premature. Perhaps, in hindsight, they were right. Um, but anyway, um, Eventually, we launched the Doha Round, um, as you know. That was after, I mean, the, the two prime movers, really, in, in launching the Uruguay Round were Pascal Lamy, who was the European Trade Commissioner, and Bob Zelek, who was the USTR in those days. And those, those are the two that really shepherded the thing uh, forward. Um, one thing that's often said about the launch of the Doha Round is that it was a reaction to 9-11 and for that reason it didn't have firm foundations. That's not true uh, and I was chairman of the General Council when the Doha Round was launched. I mean it was always on the cards throughout 2001 uh, that the, you know, the working hypothesis was that at the Doha Ministerial Conference we would launch around. And as I said, the prime movers were Pascal Lamy and Bob Zellick in that. Certainly 9-11 
kind of jolted everybody seriously and it got us over the line uh, probably in better shape than might otherwise have been the case because there was opposition to, to, to the launch of Iran as well. Um, but I think it's wrong to regard Doha, the Doha round, as simply a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to 9-11. It wasn't like that. It was in gestation for some time. But it's true, and I mean, we've seen it even recently also, like some of the geopolitical events that happen have a repercussion, but there's many other things and many other influence uh, things that happened during the time, similarly to uh, 9-11. But, uh, well, I want to talk a bit about this more, but I was curious, since you were saying that everything was new uh, and you were here in Geneva, um, did you, was there some exploring about, in Geneva being the, the headquarters of many international organizations, of what other international organizations were doing that perhaps we could do here at the WTO? Did that happen at all or, or not? Or was this like its own thing? Uh, you mean, could the WTO learn from, yes. say, the UN? Or... Being here in Geneva. Right, yeah. There wasn't a lot of that. I mean, there were, there were always some uh, delegations that thought that that was the case, that wanted, for example, wanted the WTO to vote. Um, but they were in a minority. And the, the, the great majority want, saw the WTO as a, an evolution from the GATT, and that the GATT philosophies and uh, practices should continue to permeate the organization. And it was accepted, for example, in those very early days, I think it was widely accepted, that the, the WTO, like the GATT, was about progressive and gradual liberalization of trade. Uh, I don't think that's accepted now, but I, I might be wrong, but my feeling is that uh, That, that you know the WTO is, is not really associated with uh, improved market access these days. Yes. Uh, well, we've had some progress in some aspects, but uh, you're right, it, it's broadened the interest on many other topics. Yeah. And uh, now going back to the Doha, what were some of the experiences that you had? Because this was, I think, one of the monumental historical moments in the WTO. How did you experience it as, as the chair of the General Council? Well, it was intense, I must say, a very intense experience for me. Um, and uh, a lot of lobbying, a lot of jockeying for position and all of that. I mean, that one of the main issues was agriculture. There's no question about that. And, and I talked earlier, I said that, you know, it was Pascal Lamy and Bob Zellick that drove it, which is true. But what was also driving was agriculture. That was at the heart of the round. And the EU in those days, the European communities, was seen as the, the villain in agriculture. They had a lot of support uh, in the amber box. Um, and they had about three or four times as much in the amber box as the Americans, which the Americans hated. Um, I remember going to Washington and being browbeaten about that as a representative of the WTO. Um, so uh, the trick was to get to get agriculture in the round, and in order to persuade the EU to accept that, we had to bring in everything else, because Lamy, quite rightly, and, and, and Leon Britton before him, said, well, you know, if we're going to give up on agriculture, we're going to have to get a lot on on other issues like services, and the Singapore issues were the big big thing for the EU. Um, so uh, that's how we, we got a, a, a broad-based round. It was really to, so we could cope with agriculture. And I remember to this day sitting um, on agriculture. I was, you know, coming from Hong Kong, I was no agriculture expert, <laughs> but um, I was well advised by the Secretariat. And um, we had about 20, 25 delegations sitting up in Room F. And I read out uh, the draft paragraph for the Doha Declaration on Agriculture. Um, we didn't distribute any copies, just read it out. And uh, it was a really finely balanced thing. 
And uh, I said at the end, has anyone got any comments? And I think one delegation sort of started to ask a question. And the other said, shh, you know, be quiet. And so there was no response. So we took it that this might fly. And that's basically what went into the draft declaration. But it was a real cliffhanger. <laughs> I can imagine. And I went on to be the chairman of the um, Agriculture Negotiating Group, the special session. Um, agriculture has always been a, a topic uh, that everything is linked to it. Uh, it's like you mentioned, everything is linked to it. And unfortunately, there we have not progressed as much, and we're still dealing with it now. But how were, how were the, the first days like, uh, dealing with that back then? Like you, you have to, you have to understand so many strong positions, perhaps even stronger than in other topics. How do you manage to be the the chair, which which is in the middle of all of these positions? Yeah, uh, well, it was in terms of the agriculture negotiations in the first couple of years after the launch of the round. It was very very difficult, and in fact. Um, we made a serious tactical mistake, I think. I allowed myself to be talked into um, a formulation whereby after a couple of years the chairman would uh, present draft modalities for the negotiations. So the onus, I, ex you know, I put the onus entirely on myself in accepting that formulation and of course what happened was that the delegations just stu stood firm on their positions and they said, well, you know, the chairman's going to produce a draft in two years' time, so uh, we'll just stick on, on our extreme positions. So there was no give and take. And um, we produced the draft modalities because we were obliged to, um, and mainly the EU didn't like it. And so they, they started to string things out and play it long. Um, and the, the other thing that I think went wrong in the early days of agriculture was that maybe this formulation that you know, we would agree modalities for the negotiations was a mistake because uh, the negotiations on the modalities became the negotiations. And as, as you would, might know, the negotiations on the modalities went on and on and on for years and years and years, at least till 2008. Yes. Several iterations were produced by my successors like um, uh, Crawford Falconer, um, and, uh, but it was never agreed. And there was always another layer of detail. Members would say, but, ah, but we need to, you know, this is a gateway issue, we need to go deeper into that. So uh, we never actually got to negotiations because it turned out that the, the modalities were the blueprint for the result. <laughs> yeah. And you're talking about some of lessons learned. I am curious to see because people come to Geneva and then they leave after a certain time. Who is who or what or who or which group of persons or who is in charge of keeping these lessons alive and learning from them to not make similar mistakes? Mm. Well, I suppose, you know, the Secretariat is the institutional memory of the organization, um, and these things are recorded somewhere. Um, of course, what I'm giving you is my personal take on how to interpret all of that, but the actual mechanics of it uh, will be in the archives, um, because we did keep records of informal consultations and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite difficult to to pass on this sort of institutional um, philosophy, I think. Yeah. And you were also talking about the, how important was the US and the European Commission. Um, it seems that for success to happen, it has been dri driven by a few uh, key uh, delegations. But now it seems that everything is more spread out. Uh, and there's way more points of view with Active, active interest and in participating in the, in the discussions. How, how do you think that this has changed over time? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very good observation, Rodolfo. Yeah, 
of course, when I was talking about the launch of the of the Doha round, uh, you have to remember that China was not a member of the organisation. Um, the accession negotiations were going on, and the accession of China and Chinese Taipei were agreed at the Doha Ministerial Conference, which was a huge step forward for the organisation. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I think things were less complicated in those days. They were still complicated, but not <laughs> as complicated as they are now. Uh, I think it's a good thing, you know, I think that that uh, the greater degree of involvement in, in, in the WTO over the years and the increased membership have got to be good things in the long run. It's just that we need to find our way through this uh, increasingly dense thicket uh, that, that we're dealing with, which is, which is hard. And you're talking about another, I think, important moment in the WTO, the accession of China. <laughs> how did you, what was your involvement in that and how did you see it from your perspective? Um, well, I mean, my perspective was mainly from a Hong Kong perspective. And Hong Kong, of course, is, you know, in, in economic terms, is kind of the gateway to China, or it was in those days. Uh, so we had an immense interest in, in, in the accession of China. And in those days, before China was a member of the WTO, um, there was an annual cliffhanger in the Congress in Washington about whether or not China's MFN status, as it was called in those days, normal trade relations, would be renewed. And it was done for a, a, you know, from year to year under the jackson Vanek Amendment uh, in Washington. And there were a couple of occasions, actually, when Congress said we're not going to renew China's MFN status, but the president overrode that, and they didn't have enough votes to overturn the veto. So, uh, you know, it, but it was every year was a cliffhanger. And uh, for Hong Kong, it was very worrying because that was a large slice of our economic future <laughs> that was being dealt with in, in Washington. So um, in, in Hong Kong, we used, they used to send high-level delegations to Washington every year to lobby on this. And I think the administrations that we were dealing with were generally quite sympathetic to what we were saying. Um, so we had an enormous stake in that. My instructions from Hong Kong in those days were to follow very, very closely, but uh, not, to, not to kind of get involved in the actual negotiations. Because as, as you know, the accession negotiations are really in two parts. There's one about following the WTO rulebook, yeah. and then there's the, the bilateral market access negotiations. And we did not seek negotiations with China uh, in the latter context. But um, I had to follow the negotiations very quickly, very closely, and I used to have on after nearly every negotiating round I would have a, a little get together with um, China's lead negotiator or one of his senior uh, staff and so we would report back to Hong Kong on what was going on and it was a, a, a fascinating process I mean at several occasions um, uh, China walked out of the, out of the negotiations uh, and then there was a you know tremendous hoo-ha Um, the chairman of the working group was Pierre-Louis Girard, the ambassador of uh, Switzerland, and he did a fantastic job, but um, was quite a sparky character himself, so uh, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, there was always something going on. And I also know that you were involved, I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in disputes as part of the panel. Was this during that time or was that later on? Um, it's been uh, throughout the whole period. Okay. I mean, I think when I was the perm rep of Hong Kong, I chaired Bananas 3. That was, uh, that was my first panel. And I've done a, a few more over, over the years, yeah. Not and constantly, but, but now and then. Um, and then, at one point, you came to the WTO. <laughs> yes. Uh, when was this? This was in 2002 by which time I'd been doing the Hong Kong perm rep job for eight years. And 
it was becoming a bit repetitive, I've got to say, because the WTO has a cycle, you know, so you can see the same things happening every year. And although it's still fascinating, once you've done it quite a few times, you, you start to um, think about other things, perhaps. And um, at this point, were you also one of the, of the permanent representatives with the longest term? Or, uh, probably, or yeah, yeah, but certainly not the longest, but, but one of the longer ones, yes, I would say so, yeah. And then uh, Dr. Superchai from Thailand became the Director General. Uh, and uh, he asked me if I would come uh, and join him as his Chief of Staff, which for me was a very exciting opportunity um, and one that I really didn't want to turn down. So I did retire from the Hong Kong Civil Service at that point, which I was you know, able to do. And uh, I joined him in the, in the Secretariat as, as his Chief of Staff. And um, what is, how would you describe the, the role of Chief of Staff? What was your, some of your main uh, tasks that you had to do as a Chief of Staff? Hmm. Well, I suppose every Director General uh, and, and the Chief of Staff has a has a has their own kind of perspective on things. My own way of looking at it was that I had a lot of respect for the WTO Secretariat, uh, having worked with them, you know, as a as a delegate for 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 many many years. Um, and I thought there was some, you know, and continue to be obviously some really high quality people in the Secretariat. And so I would, my philosophy was to work through them and get them to do the work and to have a small cabinet um, which, would, which would process things and edit things and make sure that everything was happening in, in, in the right time, but to rely a lot on the, um, on the senior staff of the Secretariat. So that's how we operated. And as a, as a Chief of Staff, I mean, you, as you mentioned, your main uh, focus was the staff, but were, how, how much do you balance that with the actual substantive work of the organization that you had to de deal with? How, how do you fit in both aspects of, the, of this? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, you're, you're right, I think, in a way to, to make that distinction. There's all of the routine work Uh, which, of course, it's important that the Director General gets to know about, uh, at least the bits that, you know, are most important. Yeah. I think it's difficult for a Director General to keep a Heavy. finger on the pulse of the whole organization all the time, because, as you know, there are meetings happening all the time, uh, things are coming up. Um, so it's a question, uh, I think, for the, for the Cabinet to kind of process that and but make sure that the the director general is in touch with what's going on but doesn't get completely swamped by too much detail and i think that, that was a that was a, a feeling that i had that the, there's a obviously a tendency in the divisions of the secretariat to think that their part of the organization is absolutely vital and the most important so they would kind of over report i think which i can you know understand from their point of view But then it would mean that you would have to carefully um, sort through that and, 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 and make sure that the DG didn't get too much to, to absorb. Uh, so it's kind of like being a filter in a way on that side of things. And then on the other side, in making sure that um, the Director General was well cited and well briefed for major uh, events that were, that were coming up and that He felt comfortable with the line uh, to be taken, uh, you know, at, at, at high-profile meetings and at that sort of thing, and that required often a bit of discussion with the with the DG, of course. Can you recall of any specific instance that uh, I mean, you're talking about generally, but any specific instance about a challenging uh, situation while you were serving? Well. It's interesting. I mean, you know, from my observations over the years, all director generals have their own way of doing things. 
Dr. Superchai's way of doing things was was a bit hands off in the sense that he would say, well, okay, this is a member driven organization. So I'm going to set out at a meeting, like a mini ministerial meeting or a APEC or some major regional meeting. So Dr. Superchai's approach was to say, I'm going to set out how I see things and um, make recommendations as to what I think the members ought to do. But really it's up to them, you know, so he kind of put the, put the onus back on the members, which I thought was, um, was sensible actually at the time. And then of course he was succeeded by Pascal Lamy and Pascal was much more hands-on yeah. and wanted to direct things. I mean, you know, the, you can see pros and cons for, for all, all approaches in my view. I don't think there's a right and there's a wrong. Probably different approaches in different situations would be, would be ideal. And then I guess that during the selection process of DGs, you know what you're going to get a bit. So if, if you pick one over the other, it's because perhaps you like some aspects of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the selection of DGs has been a problem for this organization from the word go. Really? Yeah, I mean, um, Peter Sutherland, of course, was the director general of the GATT. But the members couldn't agree on who should be the first DG of the WTO. There was a huge standoff. Um, and it came down to, I think there were four, five, six candidates originally. It came down to two, uh, Renato Ruggiero and... Uh, Uh, Kim Chol-su of, of Korea, and it went on um, well beyond the establishment of the WTO. The members would not, it was, it was very evenly divided between the two. So Peter Sutherland stayed on and became the first Director General of the WTO actually. Um, and then eventually uh, it was decided that uh, Renato Ruggiero would do the job, and he did a fine job I've got to say. It was quite interesting, I mean, I'm digressing again, <laughs> but, um, you know, Renato, n nobody quite knew how this WTO should work. So Renato did a, a couple of things which, which annoyed the members. I think he called a meeting, an informal meeting of the General Council, which the Director General should not do, because that's for the Chairman of the General Council to do. And um, the, the, uh, the, there was outrage at that point, but, you know, You should also recall that um, Peter Sutherland was a very strong character and he came in as DG of the GATT to basically read the riot act to the ambassadors and he had backing at a very, very high level in capitals to finish off the Uruguay round, which he did. Hmm. And I'm, I can remember coming, taking part in... Uh, some of the Uruguay round negotiations coming from Hong Kong. And I saw Peter Sutherland throw people out of meetings, you know, say, you're not senior enough, get out. Um, and that sort of thing. And uh, the ambassadors didn't like it. And so one of the things that kind of actually appalled me slightly when I first came to Geneva was this feeling amongst the ambassadors, and it was quite widespread, that we had to get the DG under control. The secretariat had to know its place. And so there was a strong feeling that when Renato Ruggiero came in, the ambassador said, we've got to get this guy under control. Uh, and uh, Renato was a very charming Italian guy. And he, uh, he sadly has passed away now, uh, but I don't think he would mind me saying this. Um, he said to me at one point, uh, because he knew Hong Kong was a strong supporter of the And the secretary said, he would say, Stuart, my dear, in his charming Italian <laughs> accent, he said, when I travel outside Geneva, I see presidents, I see prime ministers. When I come back to Geneva, if I want to go to the toilet, I have to ask the ambassadors. And then they say, all right, but only two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Great guy, Renata. Uh, marvelous man. Um, So there was that, I was digressing there, but there was this strong feeling, which I think persists a little bit to this day. But um, I thought that was one of the things that Pascal Lamy did extremely well when he was Director General. He said, no, you know, I'm going to, the Secretariat and the Director General got their, 
got the role to play and uh, we're gonna gonna do that and he pushed the envelope a bit successfully but, but you were saying that the selection process of the DJ I mean I haven't seen as many as you <laughs> I've seen two transitions but I think that he has something that I think that has improved uh, just made the process more transparent I don't know how it was before but now it seems that People outside of the organization, outside of the bubble here in Geneva, were aware of what, what was going on, which I imagine that that was not the case before. Yeah, I don't know that it's changed that much. Um, of course, after the, the uh, difficulty in appointing Ruggiero, there was the major standoff between Mike Moore and Super Chai, where again the members were evenly di divided between support for the two. And eventually they did a, not a very good thing in my view in saying, well, we'll give three years to Mike Moore and then three years to Super Chai. Um, the Lamy succession was relatively smooth. Um, but yeah, the members have had problems over the years. And I mean, there's only so much transparency you can have in that, I think. Um, I can recall in the, um, in the Mike Moore Super Chai standoff, uh, Hong Kong was a strong supporter of Super Chai, coming from Asia, obviously. Um, not that we had bad feelings about Mike Moore, but we preferred Super Chai. And I got together with one of my, uh, Mike Moore's supporters at one point during this saga, and we, we kind of totted up the votes, uh, votes in inverted commas, because it's not the thing. But uh, it came to over 200, I think. So obviously, you know, each candidate thought they were supported by so many delegations, but it turned out that some of the delegations supported, but they were actually putting it around and they supported the candidates. So it was quite, quite not, instructive. Not even now we have so many, after so many, after a few accessions, we don't have 200 yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there are some imponderables like, you know, the breadth of support and, and that sort of thing. How you interpret that is, uh, is not, so, not so easy. So, um, you were Chief of Staff for how many years? I was Chief of Staff for Super Chai for three years and then uh, Special Advisor to Pascal Lamy for two more years after that. And, uh, I mean, this, like, like you said about uh, Lamy had a bit more hands-on approach yeah. and I guess that also shaped the, the way that the organization did. But you particularly, from your vantage point, how did you see, how did you see it in your day-to-day -day interactions with Lamy? Well, I had a tremendous respect for, for Lamy and still do. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's quite something to hear him analyze a situation. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's a bit sort of alien to my sort of Anglo-Saxon <laughs> intellectual background, um, but to hear him, you know, analyze things extremely logically um, is... Uh, is very enlightening actually and um, I always enjoyed that uh, aspect of listening to, to him. I mean he could be a bit didactic sometimes but you know I guess that comes with the, comes with the territory. Um, and then after that you went to UNCTAD, is that correct? I did then uh, after that um, Superchai was then Secretary General at UNCTAD and he asked me to go up there and, and help him. Uh, as an advisor, not as not as chief of staff. Uh, Taferi Tesfatu was the chief of staff, and a, and a really nice and very very capable man he was as well. Yeah, we we got on well. Um, but Untad is a different kettle of fish, as I found out very very quickly. Yeah, actually, I would like to know more about that because I'm not really that familiar with Untad. Mm. Well, my impression um, is that. The WTR has a very flexible system of governance, as you, as you know, Rodolfo. I mean, um, Israel and Hong Kong could be working together on one issue this week, and on next week we might be sworn enemies on, on some other subject. Uh, that's the way the Hong, that, that, that um, things work in the WTO. Um, 
and uh, you know delegations will speak up for their what they see as their their economic interest and their trade interest, irrespective of alliances. Sometimes, of course, you do have LDCs, um, ACP, and, and and all of that thing. But even within those group groups, there are differences of opinion. Um, so the WTO is a bit more freewheeling and flexible in its governance, but in the UN it seems to be much more kind of formalistic. And then you know, you say we get statements from the G77 and China Group B, etc., etc., and uh, it's it's done on on that basis, um, which I think is a bit of a shame. But you know, I mean, that has evolved over over decades, I suppose. So uh, through, through your many years of experience in the multilateral system, I'm curious, like, what are some of the overarching lessons that you've had that you perhaps now looking at the, the state of things where we are, that you think could be useful for us right now uh, when we're working on day-to-day -day things at the WTO? Well, of course, it's easy to say uh, and give, give free advice. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's but, true, but I, I think that you've seen many, many iterations of yeah. the WTO from different perspectives, including Antat, who is another perspective on development. So what are some of the, of the... I mean, I think that you are in a position to provide some valuable insights. Mm. I would, I mean, amongst the things I would, I would pick out, maybe the main one I feel is that I think there's a lack of restraint now uh, compared with, you know, 20 years ago. Um, delegations are very quick to, to, um, to tear down what others are suggesting. Um, and seem to dig trenches for themselves which are hard to get out of in the in the final analysis i think it, it's easy to say of course but if people just exercised a little bit more self-restraint uh, all around i mean i'm not pointing the finger at anybody here uh, because it takes everybody to to come on board for this sort of um, exercise uh, i think that that would be very, very helpful from the point of view of the organization. I think some delegations are showing a bit of flexibility, um, but uh, we, need, we need more of that. Um, and uh, just the ability to see the other point of view, uh, to try to find formulations that everybody can live with, Um, this would be this would be useful. Of course, we've had some successes in the WTO recently, so I'm not um, criticizing too much. Uh, but because I know how difficult it is, but uh, I think we could do we could do a little bit better. I think. And some of these uh, things that you're saying, you're actually actively uh, doing. Like, for example, you are a member of a couple of. Organization. I mean, one that comes to mind, but maybe you want to talk about others, is the Friends of Multilateralism, which I guess is is trying to get uh, all of this knowledge from uh, individuals who have known the organization for many years and try to pass that along. Um, but you are involved with many other projects and institutions. Do you want to talk a bit about th that? Hmm. Well, well, I mean, I think variety is a good thing in life, so <laughs> yeah, I try to, I try to uh, follow that as much as I can. I've been involved in some technical assistance projects, um, some disputes, as, as you mentioned earlier, as a, as a panelist. Um, and uh, I write a little bit for one or two think tanks, um, the uh, European Centre for International Political Economy in Brussels and um, the Asia Global Institute in Hong Kong. Uh, I have an association with a, a part-time association with a consulting firm in Brussels, uh, which throws up work for me from, from time to time, which is, which is useful. So I'm doing all of that. 
On the frames of multilateralism, you're right that, I mean, this started out um, as, frankly, a bit of an old boys club. <laughs> you know, it was a way <laughs> the, 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 old, the old white guys, if you like, can keep in touch with each other. Not exclusively white, actually, I've got to say. <laughs> but that's how it kind of started. I think we've realised now that, that great as that is for us, you know, if, if the friends of multilateralism is going to develop in any way, it can't stay as it is. And so there's actually an exercise going on right now to, uh, to review the future of that group. Um, and, you know, we need to draw in uh, younger people, need to draw in certainly more women. Uh, that's kind of going on, but it hasn't gone far enough yet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if it's just a bunch of old guys reminiscing, it's not much use in my view. We've got to get beyond that. <laughs> Well, Stuart, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed some of the stories that you share and also the lessons that uh, you can you, you shared uh, during this conversation. Before closing, is there anything else that you want to to say? Um, not really. Only that uh, I think this is a you know the WTO is a fabulous institution, and uh, we should take care of it. Uh, we need to take better care of it than we perhaps have in recent years. It's a precious, it's a precious uh, organization in terms of uh, in terms of the world, and uh, we need to nurture it carefully. Yes, sometimes we take it for granted. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Stuart. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Rodolfo. This was the Rodolfo Rivas project. I hope you loved it. Can you deal?